Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Rick Thomas here. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to talk about probably one of the most common questions that anyone would ever ask me and something that is very important to you, and that is, how do you change? Everybody's wanting to change Everybody has this self-awareness, knowing that all things are not perfect with inside us. All things are not perfect within our relationships or our situations. And so how can I change? It's one of the more common questions asked when people think through the challenges and the responsibilities of becoming a believer. Changing, improving, maturing. Well, that is at the heart of the gospel. One of the most succinct monosyllabic verses in the entire New Testament is Christ came to seek and to save the lost. And he does this by giving us an alien righteousness. He gives us a righteousness that is not our own. It is a gift. It is his righteousness. Theologically speaking, we call it an alien righteousness that he gives to us. It is the great exchange as he forgives us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, and puts us on a path of righteous living. It creates the possibility of becoming like him or what Christians call being Christ-like. Now, there are many biblical responses to how can I change, but sometimes when folks think about the transformation question, they actually miss the mark. And so before I get into the how can I change question, I want to share with you three of the more common responses that I have heard when people talk about how to change. For example, let go and let God. Have you ever heard that one? That's a bumper sticker. It's a cliche. It's something that we might put on our t-shirt. And it sounds nice in a vacuum. But when we think about the transformation process, according to Scripture, well, then let go and let God is insufficient because it minimizes personal responsibility. In fact, a little bit later, I will talk about our responsibility when it comes to the change process. As James said, we must become doers of the word. And so let go, let God sounds nice, and it looks probably pretty good on your bumper sticker. It will not go far enough when we talk about transformation. Another common response that I've heard to the how can I change question is look out for number one. Now that really sounds more like our culture, but sometimes the Christians can find themselves dropping into this egocentric self-esteem mindset, and it really sabotages loving God and loving others most of all. Perhaps you remember in Matthew 22 when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked him, Hey, what is the greatest of all the laws? And as Jesus scanned through 600 plus laws, he, he distilled them into two, that we must love God and love others. That is the first and second greatest commandment. And so when someone comes and they say, well, I just have to look out for number one, I understand, I think I understand what they are trying to say, but if they really believe that at the depth of all practicality, then looking out for number one will actually create an independent, isolated life 
that will restrict them from flowing into God and the community, especially loving God and loving the community practically. It is actually part of our maturing process when we look outside of ourselves rather than thinking about ourselves all the time. The person who considers himself in this cliche of look out for number one, you will find them growing more and more narcissistic. The person who loves God and loves others most of all, that is the individual that will be maturing. They will be ever growing because they are pouring themselves into other people. And so let go and let God is not good enough. Looking out for number one, I would hope that you would dismiss it just on the face of it. It doesn't pass the smell test at all. And then a third response that I've heard to the change process is let your conscience be your guide. Now that is a problem also because actually our consciences are malleable. Our inner voices can change. We see this in 1 Corinthians 8 when there were these Jew, uh, Jewish people who became Christians. God regenerated them. They were born again. But because of their former manner of life, they believed that they, if they were to eat meat sacrificed to idols, they would be sinning. Their conscience was condemning them because their conscience was not trained by God's Word. Their conscience was trained by a religious system, by traditions that they had been steeped in all of their lives. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, we know that that's not a problem. No, you can eat meat, but we want to be careful with our knowledge. We want to steward our knowledge because our knowledge can puff us up and we can be arrogant. And so what we want to do is to come alongside these, these weak conscience Christians, and we want to teach them a better way. But Paul was very clear, we cannot let them sin against their conscience, and so we want to carefully bring them along. Their conscience is being their guide, but their guide is leading them down a bad path. We also see with the malleable conscience in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 2, where there were a group of people whose consciences were seared with a hot iron. And so my point here is our consciences are malleable. They can be sensitive, they can be weak, they can be dull, and they can be hard. And so when a person, when a person says, let your conscience be your guide, well, we want to speak into that because that could be hugely prob problematic. Uh, for the novice new Christian who doesn't know better, they're not guided by the Word. Or for the hardened person whose conscience has become seared, we don't want them to continue on in their sinfulness, and they are desensitized to the very things that they are doing. That is a dangerous thing when our conscience is our guide if our conscience is not in line with God's Word. The perfect sweet spot the pitch-perfect place that every Christian must be is when their conscience and God's Word are singing the same tune. Now, if that is true, then your conscience can be your guide because your conscience is being guided by God's Word. And so the question remains, if we can't let go and let God, if we're not looking out for number one, if our conscience is not our guide, then how do we change? What is that process? Now, what I want to do over the next few moments is I want to lay out for you a, a practical, a super practical nuts and bolts presentation of how you and I can change. 
this could be one of the most important things that you have ever heard. Because again, as I said earlier, we are all seeking to change. Now, by the way, I have written a book on the change process. It is called Change Me. You can see it here, the Ultimate Life Change Handbook. And what I'm presenting to you is actually one chapter from this book, so you can get an idea of what this book is about. But if you are interested in the change process from beginning to end, then I would encourage you to get this book, Change Me, The Ultimate Life Change Handbook. You can get it on Amazon. Just type Change Me and Rick Thomas, and it will come up, and they will ship it right to your door. A lady came to me a number of years ago, and she said, Rick, if you were to walk someone through the change process, what would you tell them? Uh, what would you communicate to them? And I thought that is a fantastic question. And so I decided to write a book from beginning to end. And that's what Change Me is all about. So let me present to you one of the chapters from that book, Change Me, the Ultimate Life Change Handbook. And I want to talk about, and I've titled this, Five Things That You Need to Know to Change Your Life. Now, the more technical term for the change process is called progressive sanctification. Perhaps you haven't heard of that term, but it means pretty much what you can intuit from the two words. Progressive sanctification. It is an incremental cleansing. It is an incremental transformation process that happens over years in the various milieus as you engage God and others for the purpose of maturing into Christ's likeness. And it's important to understand that. It does happen over a period of years. It is much like our own physical lives. When we are born the first time, we have everything that we need to be a human, but we are not fully mature. And then over a period of years, in various milieus, in various environments, contexts, as you go from place to place and interact with individuals and people groups, you are growing. And as you continue to grow, you grow up into a full human. Well, when you are born a second time, it's very similar. Peter talked about the that we should desire the sincere milk of the Word. And more that the more we drink the milk of God's Word, the more we will mature spiritually speaking after a person has been born a second time. But we do that in the various milieus in which we live. The two primary milieus in which you will find opportunities to transform into Christ's likeness, well, it is your family. Uh, the, the family is the primary place where transformation takes place for obvious reasons. We spend most of our time within the familial construct or the familial milieu. The second place is the body of Christ, localized in a local church. And so what we want to do is to help our family to be that sanctification center in a, a smaller construct, a smaller milieu. And then many families come together to form a local church. And as that local church matures together and benefit from all the context and interactions that you have in a local church among many families, between your family and the local church, you have your greatest opportunity of maturing in Christ's likeness. And that is that is a good snapshot of what progressive sanctification could look like in our lives. Now, in the Bible, 
There are five means of grace that the Lord provides for us so that we can progressively mature into Christ-like holiness and practical living. Now, when I say means of grace, what I'm really saying is that it is an instrumentation. It is a vehicle, a, a means that God graciously, freely gives to us that allows us to go from point A to point B. And so if you want to transform into Christ-likeness, you need these five vehicles to help you working together to move from point A to point B. And in the Bible, there are five vehicles or five means of grace that operate And when I say that, I don't mean that uh, these five means of grace are proportional, percentage-wise, as though 20%, 20%, 20, and 20. These five means of grace work at different times and different ways and different proportions. And so we don't want to look at this as a formula. We don't want to look at it in such a strict way that it's a, a legalistic structure in which we move along toward Christ's likeness. But all of them work together in a pneumatic way as we walk in the Spirit and they assimilate and collate. Sometimes one means of grace will be working in a greater way in your life and, and another means of grace won't. And then there'll be other times where another one will take the four and, and begin working in your life to help you to grow. And so let me share with you these five means of grace, and then I want to walk through them individually. The five means of grace to help us to mature in our progressive sanctification are God, the Bible, ourselves, situations, and friends. The good Lord uses all five of these things to help us mature. Obviously, God helps us to change. The Bible also helps us to change. And it is dependent upon ourselves. As I referenced earlier, James says, be doers of the word. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's not a passive exercise. We must work out our salvation, as Paul said in Philippians 2, as God is working in us. And so God will change us. The Bible will change us. We have to step up to the plate and do something too. Situations will change us. I'll talk about that in a moment with the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. And then, of course, friends change us too. And I'm not just talking about the local church, the friends that I was mentioning earlier in our local assemblies, but God will even use our enemies to change us. He will use people to change us, friends and foes. And so there you have it, five means of grace, God, Bible, ourselves, situations, and our friends. Now, what I I hope that you will do over the next few moments is you will think about each one of these individually, independently, and then you will begin to ask yourself questions. How am I benefiting from? How am I engaging these five means of grace? Is there a weak one in the list? Is there something that I need to shore up because I'm not fully benefiting from all that God provides me so that I can change? And so let's start with the first and primary means of grace for transformation to happen in my life and yours. God changes us. The number one contender in the change process is God himself. Of course he is. God will change 
us. Now, I do not think that any believer would argue this point. Though there are other means of grace, four more that I'm going to list, and we want to implement them at different times and in different ways, there is one steady and consistent change agent. God is always part of the change process if sustaining transformation is going to happen. Oh, you can turn over new leaves, and you can make new resolutions, and you can commit and recommit uh, to change. But what you will find in most people's lives, and I know it's true in mine, that without God actively engaging me, my change is more cyclic. It's more up and down. It lacks that consistency or that perseverance. And after two or three months, I'm no longer doing what I had intended to do, even with the best intentions. The testimony of Scripture is clear. God grants change in our lives, or what we theologically call repentance. Think about it this way. When I say that God grants change, God grants repentance, that is a truth that Paul was teaching Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24, 25, 26. In that area, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says God grants repentance, meaning God has to impose himself on ourselves to begin a process of transformation transformation. Oh, we can turn over those new leaves. We can make new commitments. We can have times of refreshing, but God has to be the initiator for that change to happen. Think about your own salvation. We cannot save ourselves. We can't intellectually make ourselves born again. No, there has to be a moment, the big bang, where God wakes us up from the dead. As we read in Ephesians 2, that he quickens us. He makes us alive. God is the one that does that. And when we come alive, we respond in faith and repentance to him. It's the same in our sanctification. When God brings conviction in our lives, he opens up our hearts, he initiates, and then we respond to him. If a person wants to change, the first place he must look is to God. Let me say it clearly. All authentic and sustaining change begins with Sovereign Lord. Do you want to change? Then make your request known to God. Ask Him to transform you into the image of His dear Son. The Lord can do this for you. Now, I know to some Christians the request to pray to God about personal change, it just sounds overly simplistic. I mean, we are a postmodern culture. We are sophisticated. We have technology. We're on this side of history, not that archaic side of history. And for some of them, because of their cynicism, it's a worn-out attempt to no avail. Well, the truth is, I understand their cynicism, and you probably too understand them too. I have often prayed to God to change me, but the, best I, but the best I could tell is that it was not happening. And when I think about a prayer to God for change and it doesn't happen, or at least it doesn't happen on my timetable and according to my preferences, this is when I need to look to James, James because he gives us some insight into this tension when he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
Can we have a moment of honesty here? I mean, as I look back on those times when change seemed to be slow or change was to no avail, it was not happening. As I look in the rearview mirror, I can, I can see that my thoughts, my motives, my perspectives, they were not in line with God's designs or His intentions for me. I reflectively see now, from this point in my life, that I was off-centered. Many of those requests were more self-focused, either in my motivations or my attitudes, that I saw things that I wanted, but God, the good parent, sovereign Lord, did not answer my prayer requests in the way that I wanted them. But in time, I did change, but not exactly how I thought it would happen or in the time frame that I had hoped it would come. And so just because God is silent in your life right now, it does not mean that God is not working. Silence and God not being active in our lives, that's not true. Sometimes as a parent, you will be silent in your child's life, but that never means that you're not active or considering your child. It's just that silence is the best response to your child in this moment at this time. And so when we pray and God does not answer, it does not mean that he doesn't care. It does not mean that he is not there. It does not mean that God is not considering us. It just means that God has intentions for us and they're not quite in line with what we are asking him to do. But this one truth is true. When transformation happens, it always begins with God. There are five means of grace that that God uses or the Bible teaches us how to change. One of those is that God will change us. The second one is the Bible will change us. One of those instruments, one of those vehicles of God's grace that takes us from point A to to point B is His incorruptible and empowering Word. Our walk with God is a faith walk, and the way that we learn to walk by faith is through hearing and responding to the Word of God. We inform our faith by the Bible. As we walk by faith, we experience change. We hear the good Word of God, and we reflect upon it, and then we take action steps based on the guidance of God's Word, and transformation begins to happen. Now, when you think about studying the Bible, I trust that you have a process or have a way of studying the Bible to to make the most out of it. Now, there are many ways to study the Bible, so there's not a formulaic one like this is the way to study the Bible, and you will do it and that's all you have to do. I trust there are many ways that you study the Bible, that you come at it from commentaries, for example. You come at it by just reading the Scripture. You study the Bible by hearing a message that is preached to you. Or you're in a Bible study where you're parsing the Greek and you are learning more about the Bible. There are many ways to study the Bible. But what I would like to do here is I want to share with you five simple things that I believe will help you to become mastered by the Word, meaning the Word of God is controlling you. And so you take these five things in sequential order. As you grow in these practices, I promise you, if you take this seriously, 
and do these five things that I ask you, the Bible will just come alive to you, and you'll become, you, you'll start changing according to God's Word. You will have incredible insight and wisdom regarding the change process. And so let me give you five simple steps that you can implement in your life, like right now. And as you do that, you'll start experiencing little by little change immediately. Number one, if you want to change according to God's Word, by God's Word, if you want the Bible to change you, number one, pray. Pray. Before you start reading your Bible, and so I have a, a Bible right here, and you're going to you're getting ready to go in it so that you can learn before before you even before you open it up pray take time to pray but pray specifically this is not a generic prayer ask god to open your eyes to what you are learning take time we're not in a hurry this is we don't have to live frenetically we don't have to live like like we normally live fast and don't have time to slow down we want to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives and we want to stop and and pray god i am about to to open this bible and so what i want to do is i want to pray and i'm going to resist reading by rote 4.25 chapters in uh, a day so I can read the Bible in a year and I can tick that box and say I read the Bible in a year. No, we're not doing this. We're reading the Bible because we want to read the Bible, not because we have to read the Bible. And so we stop, we settle our minds, we ask God to give us a peace a slowness of heart so that we can read. And so we want God to give us that patience that we need to read His Word. And so now we're settled and we're ready to open up God's Word. And so we open it up. Point number two, we read. But again, like when I say pray, I'm talking about a specific kind of prayer. And when I say read, I'm talking about a specific kind of reading. Read expectantly. Expect God to reveal things to you about yourself. You are stepping into God's Word optimistically, not cynically, not unsure of what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. God is going to reveal things to you about yourself because you've prayed, you've slowed yourself down, you have ruthlessly eliminated hurry, your heart's in the right place, you're reading, you're reading expectantly, and God's Word's going to come alive, and you're going to be, begin to see things. And so as you read expectantly, you look for those things. I mean, it's like a man mining for gold. He's very optimistic, and he just keeps digging and digging. He pays attention to what he's doing. Your world has shrunk down to just that text, and you're so dialed in on what you're reading in the moment. Job said it this way in 23.12. He says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. And so you're reading like a, a man who hasn't had food in many days. And so number one, if you want the Bible to change you, pray. Number two, read. And then number three, reflect. When the Spirit of God illuminates your mind, when God begins to change you as you are reading the Bible, 
Illumination is happening. The dimmer is turning on. The room is getting brighter. The room inside your mind. God is illuminating you, and that's your moment to stop. Stop reading and start reflecting. Consider what God is showing you in the light of the word that you have read. It's not time to go to the next word, the next sentence, the next verse, the next chapter, the next book. No, you want to stop right there. You want to sit in that word, sit in that phrase, sit in that sentence, sit in that verse, and you want to soak in it, asking God. You want to reflect. You want it rolling around your mind, considering what God means, considering what the text means. What is the actual intent of that verse? What is that verse saying to you. You're not reading into it, making it say whatever it is that you want to say. No, you're, you're asking it to say what it's supposed to say. And so you are digging out of it. You are exegeting that verse and you are uh, hiding those things in your mind. And now you are reflecting. Now, part of that process, number four, is right. And so you pray, you read, you reflect, and now you write. You take time to write down what God has shown you. When your thoughts go from a page in the Bible to your brain and down your arm, onto your hand and onto a piece of paper or onto a computer screen. When you go through that physical process, you will start owning the very thing that you read. It's very similar to highlighting a verse of scripture or highlighting a good quote that you like in a book that you just read. When you highlight, you take, you're taking ownership of it. But when you go beyond highlighting and you write it down and begin a journaling process, you don't have to be a journaler where you're writing pages every day. But what you're doing is physically engaging that verse, not just reflectively, but now you're writing it down so that you can spend longer in, in processing what is going on. By the way, when you write it down, you have to be succinct. So your mind is constantly engaged because you can't write the way that you talk. And so you have to be succinct. You have to be brief in what you're saying. And that writing process will challenge your brain uh, to bring what you read down to a practical point. And so you pray, then you read, you reflect, then you write. And then number five... And again, we're under point number two, the Bible changes us. Number five, you teach. At some point during the day, you tell someone what God taught you. The teacher will learn more than the student. And if you can explain what he showed you, what God has showed you, the truth will begin to master you. It's, it's easy to hear something, and, and, and again, it can, it can go through the curve of forgetfulness, and, and very quickly that curve of forgetfulness will completely forget what we actually heard. But if we go through this rigorous, and it's not so rigorous that it's impossible for anyone, actually anyone can do what I'm laying out for you. But it is a discipline, maybe that's a better word than rigorous, is we discipline ourselves in the study of God's Word. And then we finish up by sharing with someone, very similar to writing it down on a piece of paper. You have to think through it. You just can't write willy-nilly and just wildly. You actually have to have some kind of discipline. And, and logical sequential thought when you write? Well, when you begin to articulate to a friend what you are, are learning, 
another a similar process kicks into gear because again you have to really process what you are saying and the more that you the more that you can articulate what you are saying the more you are going to own it so if you want the bible to change you there are five practical steps you can engage god's word to experience transformation progressive sanctification now as you make this simple sequence of studying god's word part of your regular practice you can also add memorization to your daily habits i mean if the word of god is what it is what better thing can you do than to put it in your mind five ways five things that you need to know to change your life number one god will change you Number two, the Bible will change you. Number three, we change ourselves. An imperative is a word that demands personal attention to or a required action that is unavoidable if you want a desirable outcome. According to God's plan, sanctification cannot happen without the participation or the cooperation of the individual who wants to change. God will change you. He is the primary change agent. But we are secondary causal agents, and so God wants us to cooperate with him. Again, as Paul told, uh, uh, Paul said in Philippians, that God is working in you, and we are to work it out. Or as James says, we have to be doers of the word. The New Testament is full of imperatives to which the writers ask us believers to respond. We got to do stuff. In Ephesians 4.22, he says, put on off that old person, that former manner of life. In Ephesians 4.23, he says we are to renew the spirit of our minds. In Ephesians 4.24, we are to put on Christ. In Ephesians 4.29, we aren't to let any corrupting speech dominate our hearts. Tim Keller said it this way, some helpful, wise counsel regarding the personal responsibility of the individual who is seeking change. Quote, God's mercy comes to us without conditions, for by grace are you saved. But it does not proceed without our cooperation. For example, the most helpful part of a counseling session Biblical counseling is what I've been doing for many, many years now. And I have seen that the most helpful part of a counseling session is typically outside of the counseling office, not during the counseling. The temptation for some Christians is to think, well, if I can just receive counseling, everything will be okay. Well, most certainly many good things can happen in a counseling session. And there have been many times when God became involved with someone during a counseling season. However, it is outside the counseling office where opportunity knocks. The grind of our daily lives is where we are called upon to respond to what God is doing and what He is allowing in our lives. It is those everyday contexts, those milieus that I was talking about earlier, those environments in which we live, whether it's our familial environment or the local church environment, our work environment, school, shopping at the grocery store, going to the fitness center. It doesn't matter what those milieus 
those are, but you will find in those everyday contexts of our lives, God exposes our authentic selves to the world and gives us opportunities to practically apply the grace that he offers to those actual situations in which we find ourselves. If people are unwilling to change themselves, then they must know that a counseling session, it will not work. I mean, counseling alone is not strong enough to push them over the top. Counseling is 60 minutes. For me, I've always counseled two hours and and rarely anything less, many times even longer. I've counseled as as long as five plus hours with someone, but my, my standard time frame for counseling is two hours with any person, 120 minutes of advice and guidance. But you compare that. I mean, even though 120 minutes sounds like a lot for counseling, and maybe it is, but you compare that to a week's of opportunity to change outside of the office. There are 168 hours in a week, and let's say I just counsel for two hours. I'm not really concerned about those two hours, but I am concerned about those 166 hours in which they go off to wherever they go and do whatever they do in the various milieus of their lives. I mean, in the counseling office, there is order. There is a system, there's a philosophy, there's a methodology, there's a process, there's a way of doing counseling. And for two hours, we have a nice structured context, construct. But those other 166 hours in the week, when they go about doing what they do, it's like going from order to chaos. It is the chaos chaos of their lives that brought them to the counseling session. And so what you want to do is to extend the order that they experience in the counseling session until it begins to dominate the chaos that was previously in their lives. But that will not happen. Counseling success is impossible if the counseling context is the exclusive means of grace for change to happen. It is upon the individual to apply and to maintain what he learns in counseling. If God's grace is empowering, which it is, if God can change me, which he will, if the Spirit of God can enable me to change, which he does, if God's word is sufficient, which it is, Then the big question, when change does not happen, is why do I not change? If you want to change, you must not think you can just let go and let God. You have to respond to God by engaging the discipline that He provides. Be a doer of the Word. Work out what He is working into you. Let me give you a cheeky cliche. God helps those who help themselves. In the divine wisdom of God, he has put part of the change responsibility on you and me to make the necessary adjustments to mature. Five things you need to know to change your life. God will change you. The Bible will change you. You will change yourself. And then number four, situations changes us. 
In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph told his brothers that God meant it for evil, I-T. God meant it, I mean that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The it, the I-T, the, 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 the smallest way that he could communicate what was happening in his life, it, it is profound. The it, what Joseph was talking about, represents the cruel situations that God allowed in Joseph's life. For 13 seemingly wasted and harsh years, Joseph was going through it, I-T, for his good, for the glory of God, and for the survival of an entire nation. As many of you know, it was, it was through what was going on in Joseph's life that we have Jesus. Joseph had to go down into Egypt in order to preserve the seed that God promised in Genesis 12, which we see coming to fruition in Galatians 4.4. Joseph had a God-centered view on the situations of his life, and rather than being overwhelmed by his situations, he saw it He saw the situations in a redemptive, God-centered way. The it in Joseph's life included, one, sibling rivalry and conflict. Two, a failed murder plot. Three, physical and verbal abuse. Four, the loss of his family and friends. Five, kidnapped and transported to another city. Six, sold as a slave. Seven, forced into servitude. Eight, recipient of lies and slander. Nine, imprisonment, though he was not guilty. Ten, abandonment by his friends. Eleven, called to rise above victimization. That's the it that we see in chapters 37 through 50 in the book of Genesis. I have never counseled an individual who experienced the accumulative cruelty of the situations that the Lord permitted in Joseph's life. Most definitely, the events in Joseph's life far exceed the circumstances of my life. And though what he went through was harsh, it was complex, We know that the good Lord was with Joseph. I think one of the most profound verses in in all of Scripture is Genesis 39, verse number 2. It says, God was with Joseph. When all it was happening, God was with him. And he was allowing the situations in his life because there was a more excellent plan in the works. And I laid out some of that already from Genesis 12. You could go back to Genesis 3.15. All the way to Galatians 4.4, we see the seed coming through and actually dying on the cross and, and giving us an opportunity to be saved. Well, we know the rest of the story. God used those situations to change Joseph. God will use situations to change you and me. He changed him geographically as he went from Israel to Egypt. He changed him vocationally as he was working on the farm, so to speak. And then he became the equivalent of vice president in the land of Egypt. He changed him spiritually, no doubt. And he changed him relationally as well. Geographically, vocationally, spiritually, relationally. Joseph did not sinfully resist the situations that had happened to him. 
as best we can tell, he had a God-centered expectation regarding the situations or the circumstances that God wrote into his narrative. We also understand that he embraced his challenging circumstances and God used them to shape him into the person that God wanted him to become. If you believe this, and if you will cooperate with God, your situations can change you too. The question should never be, do situations change me? The real question should be, how are my situations changing me? In a split second or in the heat of the moment, or by a phone call, or when criticism comes, or an unfavorable event happens, we have a choice. The situation, regardless of what it is, will change us one way or another. We have no choice about this. I mean, situations will change us one way or the other. The real issue is whether or not we will view and respond to what happens to us as an opportunity to glorify God, or will we react to the situation in our lives in a self-centered way? Five things you need to know to change your life. God will change you. The Bible will change you. We must change ourselves, cooperating with God. And then number four, situations, circumstances will change us. And then number five, finally, people will change us. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, a very short sentence, Nathan said to David, you are the man. He was confronting David. God was using Nathan as an instrument of righteousness in his hands to change his servant, David, the shepherd boy, the king of Israel. You see, David slept with another woman in the heat of the moment. In the dark of the night, David committed adultery. Rather than changing his ways, he chose to cover his steps. And you know the story. He had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed so that he could marry her. Once married, he covered his sin. And there was no compelling reason for him to own it or try to change because of it. What David did not count on was the relentless love of his heavenly father. God is a relentless pursuer of his children. God loves us too much to let us linger forever in our sins. But sadly, David was lingering. He was physically and spiritually deteriorating because of his unwillingness to change his life. And you'll read about that in Psalm 32. Maybe it would be a good time just to make a note, a mental note, if you're not able to write it down, but write down Psalm 32, verses 1 through 4, and you will see where the heavy hand of God was upon David. He said, when I kept silent about my sin. And many times that is our temptation to be, keep silent about aspects of our lives that should see the light of day. Well, sometimes God wants to change us, and sometimes He will use people. He will use the agency of humankind to bring that change to our lives. Because of God's mercy to David, he sent his friend Nathan to help him change. And though the Lord is the one who ultimately changes us, I've said that earlier, he is the primary change agent, but he may allow people. Now get this. He may even allow our enemies. Now, in this story, Nathan was not David's enemy. They were good friends. But sometimes God will even use our enemies to change our lives. It's not always our our family. It's not always our friends. It's not always those who live or that we do 
do church with. Sometimes it's those people on the other side of the line. They are the ones that become a means of grace to help us to change. And I'm sure you have your stories where something negative happened in your life from a person that you may call an enemy or a frenemy. And that person is not your friend. And that person is not someone that you're going to want to spend time with because you just live in two different worlds and you act in two different ways. But God will use that person and you have your story. And God used him or her. And because of what they did to you or said about you, that begin to bring transformation in your life as you begin to take them to God in prayer and as your heart began to change. Think about this. God uses sin sinlessly, meaning that he can use the sinful people in our lives to bring transformation to our lives. Nathan was the instrumentation of grace that God chose to use to help David repent. People helping people to change is not a foreign concept in the Bible. Now, obviously, we spend more time, I hope, within our local church context and within our families. More than likely, as Christians, we spend more time with Christians. And so Christians are primary change agents in our lives. But we do not want to have a myopic view of how transformation happens. It is not just primarily the one another's that we see in the New Testament happening within our local congregations, but it can be any individual far and wide, enemy, friend, foe. And though he can use anyone, including our foes, God does value community. And it is in our community where we want to spend our time speaking primarily of our family and our local churches. You see, the Father, Son, and Spirit are the original community. Let's make him in our image, in the communal image of God. And God expects his community of faith, you and me, to partner with him when it comes to helping people change. Five things you need to know to change your life. Now, what I want to do as I wrap up here, I want to give you some questions that you can think about. Oh, and by the way, if you go to lifeovercoffee.com, you can find a full transcript of what I just shared with you. Go to Life Over Coffee, look for this title, Five Things You Need to Know to Change Your Life. And you can read a full transcript. You can listen to a podcast. You can watch the video, read the article. It's all contained there, nicely bundled up for you. By the way, I have a couple of graphics in that article as well. And so go to lifeovercoffee.com. Again, look for the article, Five Things You Need to Know to Change Your Life. Now, for some of you, maybe you want to get my book, Change Me. I just shared with you a chapter from this book, and there's a whole lot more here with many graphics in it, and you can pick that up at Amazon. But before I wrap up, what I want to do is just walk through a few questions that I trust will help you. And if you want a full list of these questions, you can slow this down and write them. Just pause as you need or go to Life Over Coffee again and get that article, Five Things You Need to Know to Change Your Life. So how do you change? Are you a lone ranger, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of Christian? I hope not. I hope you are a Christian who values all the means of grace that the Father provides for your transformation. But to help us to think about progressive sanctification, I have put together some questions for application that can lead to change. I have 10 of them here. I will work through those quickly and we will be done. Number one, 
What is one thing you need to change about yourself? Be specific. Now, I am sure that God has, uh, the Spirit of God is illuminating something right now, placing something on your mind. We don't want to be like David when I kept silent about my sin. God's heavy hand was upon me. I was wasting away as the summer heat. And so what is one thing that you need to change about yourself? Number two, on a scale of one to ten, how would you rate your faith in God as it pertains to Him changing you? And I'm asking a specific question about God changing you, the number one calls agent, God changes us. And so with one being weak and ten being strong, on a scale of one to ten, how would you rate your faith in God? That is an important question. There are many Christians who have this low-level anger with God. They are disappointed with God. Maybe that is a better way of framing it rather than saying anger because disappointment is a synonym for anger. But sometimes when we change our words around, it gives a little more clarity, a little more nuance. And I think there are many Christians who are angry with God because of the life that they have, because of some frustration that's going on in their lives, some relational or situational difficulty. Remember, if we are angry with God, it will hinder our relationship with Him. And if He is the primary cause agent, change agent, which He is, He grants repentance, then our relationship with God, our walk of faith in God has to be strong or getting stronger. And so on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your faith in God? Number three, would you briefly describe a situation in your life that was challenging but God used it to change you for His glory. Now that would be a good time to, or a good story rather, to share with someone about what God did. And you'll probably find that that would be an encouragement to them because they're just like you. They're just like me. We all find ourselves in situations where we can get stuck or just have a rough patch that we're going through. And we hear stories about what God did to someone When they were going through their rough patch, it could be an encouragement to those who are still stuck. And that's why I wanted to share the story, the situation, the it in Joseph's life. I laid out 11 things that encompass the it in his life. Now, what about a time when you responded to God poorly? The first question here under number three, when you responded correctly for his glory, how did it go? But what about when you didn't respond well? I have those stories too. Number four, how are you generally characterized when unfavorable situations happen to you? Do you appropriate the grace of God and typically work through the situation biblically? Or do you generally react sinfully and and make things worse? I do not say that as a judge. I say that as as one who is guilty. I did not respond to the situation favorably and ended up making things worse. Number five. Describe how God is using a current situation to change you. Maybe there's something that you're in now. What are you learning? How are you changing? Would you consider having a conversation with someone about that, your current situation? Number six, how much do you cherish the community of faith as a means of grace to help you change? Now, I I, I expanded the point number five, people change you because it needs to be expanded, friend or foe. But now I'm speaking specifically to the community of faith and maybe even more specifically your local church. 
How much do you cherish the community of faith as a means of grace to help you change? Do your closest friends within your local church, do, do they know all that is appropriate for them to know about you? I'm not saying that you should blab everything. A fool reveals his whole mind, and so there needs to be Christian propriety. There needs to be discretion. But are we appropriately communicating ourselves to others so that they can see us and be a means of grace to help us change? Number seven, how has God used your enemies or unbelievers to help you mature in Christ's likeness? People help people to change. Friend and foe. Number eight, would you be willing to talk about how you do or do not create context of grace for your personal relationships to bring correction to you? How aggressive are you in pursuing correction from others? I mean, holding your friends accountable, having at least one. And again, I'm not talking about putting this out on X or Facebook or Instagram or, or wherever on the socials. Don't blab your whole life. But are you aggressively have one person in your life who you are asking them, appealing to them to bring corrective care? Number nine, would you say your friends characterize you as someone who pursues them to help you change? Are you holding them accountable to help you change? And then finally, number 10, name one thing. Just name one thing that you would not want your friends to know about you. What is that thing? I want to go back to Psalm 32, verses 1 through 4. David said it, When I kept silent about my sin, God's heavy hand was upon me. And those are 10 questions. Again, you can find all 10 of those questions at lifeovercoffee.com. Look for the article, Five Things You Need to Know to Change Your Life. You'll get the article, all of those questions. You get a full-length podcast. You get a video as well. It's, they're all three are the same. Or if you'd like, get my book, Change Me, The Ultimate Life Change Handbook. You can get that on Amazon by typing Change Me, Rick Thomas, and they will ship it right to your door. Thanks so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.